Commander Shepard has been recovered. The Lazarus Project will proceed as planned. Welcome to episode three of the Lazarus Project podcast. For your favorite Mass Effect fans here, I am Manning, aka That Cerberus Guy, joined as always by Tim. Hello. And Craig. Hello there. So today we've got a pretty cool podcast for you. We're going to start off with a little bit of news. Drew Carpitian didn't ask me anything about um, an extended, uh, an unused ending concept for the third game. Um, We've got some news on KOTOR, unfortunately, being shelved for the very foreseeable future. Some SWOTOR news and a couple of other topics. Welcome to Citadel Newsnet. I'm Emily Wong. So, yeah, first up was the, the Ask Me Anything from uh, Drew Carpishin. He was uh, talking about all sorts of stuff, really. Uh, there's a few Mass Effect questions in there, uh, a few Star Wars questions. Uh, but the one that most people, Mass Effect, community really jumped upon was that he talked about a an alternate ending that they they were having plans around for mass effect 3 and it was very similar to the destroy ending that we got uh, he says the original plan was to have all the reapers come through into the the soul system and then pretty much destroy the uh, mass relay network so it traps them in uh, the Milky Way galaxy uh, but then he did go on to say that they didn't have plans on how to go forward from the next game with that because obviously everyone would be then stranded so it wasn't quite fully fleshed out which is very similar to the original ending that we got before the extended cut because I remember there being a massive uh, massive outcry of how are people, how are all like these species supposed to get home, and what are they going to eat, and all that kind of crazy talk. It kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Like if um, they originally had some kind of like plan to do games that built on that, like before the whole outcry happened. Well, I mean, I think that's a fair criticism too, because like one thing that always confused me is, I mean, like I obviously understand that probably the vast majority of people did pick the destroy ending, but when you consider that the Star Child specifically says that it affects all technology, not just like the Geth and Edie, and he even says the Shepherd, like even you yourself are part synthetic. Could you imagine your lives without it? So to me, that always said, okay, so first of all, like if the relays are gone, then the Turians and Corians are dead because they can't eat anything because they're stuck in the soul system. Like I know the Corians grow all their own food, but if it says all technology, to me, that means I would screw up like their agricultural ships, never mind their Enviro suits. So, I mean, like to me, like the destroy ending just killed almost everybody. Yeah. I, I, I guess it would also it, it would kind of build on something we've been theorizing for the next Mass Effect game and in that it would just build on the destroy ending and kind of 
you know, assume that that was the the canon option, I guess, because you know, there's there's no way that they could, you know, even tackle or consider tackling all of all of that, but also consider other options that people might have picked, like control or synthesis. I think that's a good, probably the main reason why they decided to set Andromeda like 600 years in the future. And again, I hope that's a similar tactic they employ with whatever Mass Effect 5 ends up being called. It was a good plan, to be fair. They they shouldn't have abandoned it because it was a, it was a great way forward for the series. I mean, it certainly raises a lot of questions. And... I mean, whilst it would have done something like, I guess, as as drastic as, you know, potentially killing the Corians, as you're saying, Manning, but, um, you know, also the Geth, it wouldn't mean that, like, in every circumstance, at least, that those races are gone. Like, that would only be an instance where, you know, you choose the destroy ending. And if that game that was going to build off of that just built on the destroy ending... We wouldn't get to see the Geth and the Corians, but at least in a another ending, we know that they're alive, kind of thing. Yeah, that's that's a valid point, and I mean, like, I again, like, I never said, I never like intended, like, there will always be survivors somewhere. Like, I mean, but it just generally speaking, I always thought that the destroy ending caused far more problems than it solved. So maybe I wonder if that's possibly why like because what i've what i've heard from drew on the matter in what he was talking about it almost sounds like his idea was like even more extreme than what we ended up getting with the destroy ending they did um they did change it with the extended cut as well didn't they they did say that the relays weren't destroyed and they were only damaged and they could be rebuilt so they kind of give themselves a bit of a get-out clause with the extended cut, which is now official canon. Yeah, well, they did that with all three endings, didn't they? Like, in the control ending, the Reapers rebuild all the relays, and in the synthesis ending, they just never get damaged in the first place. I'm pretty sure they also show the Corians alive, don't they, in the extended cut, in the destroy ending? They do, but I always chalk that up to, like, Again, there'd always be some survivors, but like that has to have been catastrophic to both the Turian and Corian, like their races. Yeah, yeah, it did, did kind of seem, I don't know, like we could have gotten a lot more information about that. But I suppose when the Mass Effect galaxy is as vast as it is, you can't cover all your bases, really. I don't know, you could also just chalk it up to, they just might have plain forgot that everyone in the soul system who is a dextro-based life form would just not have food. Like, I mean, I could see them. That could see. I could see that being something that might slip through the cracks somewhere along the line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's also obviously a, a case could be made as well for the fact that they're adapting without their suits now as well. But I mean, that's not like an instant thing. I guess they still got to take time before they adapt to it. Only if you save the Geth, and even then, there's not a lot of time between the end of Vranok and what happens in London. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Although the Geth do work fast. That is true. Say so, well they are tools after all, so they're people, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> the Geth are not people. They're machines.
Oh, real quick there, by the way, did my audio caught out at all a few minutes ago? I think so. Okay, never mind. Must have been nothing. I hiccuped then. Message coming in. Patching it through. All right, so next on the news front here, I believe Craig has a little bit of news, a tidbit, if you will, about Star Wars The Old Republic and a very senior person no longer being with the company. Yeah, he's he was the supposed creative director, or he's at least been part of the team since the game launched. And he's been he was overseeing the like the actual development of the entirety of the game before it released. So straight out of college he took a job with Bioware in two thousand and six, it looks like, according to an article with Volk.com. And basically, yeah, he, he sort of made a post in in the Swator forums saying that even after almost 16 years, I still can't fully believe how lucky I have been to work on Star Wars The Old Republic. The galaxy's been a huge part of my life since I was a kid, so getting to play a role in Swator's growth from its initial vision to a colossal release and the incredible live service for over a decade has been an amazing experience. The team's passion, creativity, dedication that this game on this game are incredible. I don't think I can ever fully express how much I've admired and appreciate working with them every single day. And there's some exciting things in the work for the future, storylines, planets, gameplay characters that you can't wait to see come to life. And yeah, he's he, this seems to be like a very kind of heartfelt leaving. It doesn't seem like he's been fired or anything. If he's been there since launch, that's, you're looking over 10 years, aren't you? Yeah. Um, I think they said 16 years in the article, which is pretty crazy. That's a long time to be with any company. Yeah. I mean, I was starting to wonder as I kind of saw because I did follow him on Twitter and seeing some of the posts over the years, I did start to wonder because there are pictures when he doesn't look so like cheery as he used to. And I started to wonder, like, is he getting a bit more tired of working for them after all this time? Because, I mean, you can be enthusiastic about something that you've seen from initial conception, but. I mean, when you've been working on something for 16 years, I can imagine there's a point when you kind of want to move on to something else. <laughs> that and it also, I mean, it's probably also fair to ask if there's also maybe like some internal issues going on with Bioware as a whole, because I mean, they've had quite a lot of turnover the past few years. And I know a lot gets made about crunch and the quote unquote Bioware magic. So, I mean, but if it was just one or two people, it might be like isolated instances. But I mean, when it's the amount of people like Charles Boyd, Aaron Flynn, the like, it's so many people, Drew Carpitian, Casey Hudson. Yeah. Actually, Casey Hudson left, then came back and then left a second time. <laughs> yeah, that one's a bit, it's a, it's a bit boring, isn't it? That, that case. But I mean, like, it's probably one thing we could endlessly speculate about and probably never get a straight answer. It's just it, like as, as someone who's grown up, like I spent my whole life with Bioware. I still remember I bought their first ever game new back in 1997, Shattered Steel. Still, still a pretty good MechWarrior game to this day. So, I mean, being like a fan of that company for like a quarter century now, seeing it hopefully like going through all this kind of turmoil it's just kind of depressing to be honest yeah i mean i think they they do have separate um separate like separate teams i guess for like the because i know they've got like separate um teams in like separate states or something when it comes when it comes to to swotor and their other projects 
Um, but it is it is quite sad to see so many people leaving. But I think that worries me when it comes to to to, to the news with um, Charles Boyd leading leaving. Is that there's been a lot of kind of concern about the lack of content that's been releasing. And whilst I don't think the the game's going to shut down anytime soon, um, it seems worrying that they don't really know where they're going with the story at, at this at this point in time. Because I think with with an MMO, you kind of write yourself into a corner. Because yes, it's quite cool they've gone back to the whole Empire versus Republic thing in the latest expansions. Um, it's kind of a problem when you can't have either side win because it's an MMO because you've got players on both sides of the war. So, <laughs> you know, you can't really have a, a successful outcome. Whereas at least with Knights of the Eternal Throne and Fallen Empire, you could defeat them because, you know, you don't play on that side. Yeah, I know. And I mean, to be fair, Swotor is 11 years old now. And I mean, any... Or any MMO is going to have issues like that. I mean, I remember going all the way back to 2004 playing World of Warcraft. And I mean, Blizzard had the exact same issues. But it was amazing at the start and for the first five, six, seven, eight years. But after a while, yeah, you just run out of ideas and things to do with it. And then it just slowly kind of falls apart a little bit. And hopefully, like WoW did bounce back. So I'm hoping any issues, SWOTORs, going through can be resolved and it'll have a comeback too. I like the sound of that. Okay, I guess then next, the other big Bioware news is obviously, I'm sure everyone's heard by now, uh, the Knights of the Old Republic remake has been indefinitely shelved and from the reports I've been reading, it looks like it might be, we might not be getting it until like the earliest as like early 2025. So I guess what happened there was Bioware or EA or a combination of the two were looking at what Asper, the people who are doing the remake, had done up to that point and were thoroughly disappointed and ended up unfortunately firing Brad Prince and Jason Miner, the two directors of the project. And I mean, obviously this is disappointing for me, but on the other hand, I kind of feel the same way about this as I did with the whole Metroid Prime 4 thing, in that even if it takes them an extra like three, four, five years, I would be willing to wait for a good game because if they rewrote like KOTOR, especially the first one, was such an important game for so many people and such an like amazing nostalgic memory of your childhood or a teen or young adult or whatever. It's just, if they release a mess, like I just, I could kind of see a revolt. But if they take four or five years and then release something that's, even if it's not as good as we remember, all KOTOR being way back in 03, if it's even like 85 or 90% of that, I think that like, that's what they have to aim for. Yeah. I mean, it, it you, you don't really know what it was that they originally had in mind, though, do you? Like, I mean, I, I, did, I didn't even know at all if... Um... I, I had no idea that EA even had kind of a say in it. I thought Aspire were kind of working independently with Lucasfilm Games on it, but I guess if I guess if it's such an iconic Bioware and an EA like product, I guess they kind of have to have a say in it. Well, from what I've gathered from reading a couple articles, is I guess the the project they'd used an astronomical amount of the budget 
just making the demo. So apparently not only was the demo not anywhere close to the expectations they had, it apparently was they used way too much money even making it. So like the game, the project itself was on an unsustainable budget path. And which unfortunately, again, seems to be a common occurrence in the games industry these days. I could list off a few other games that have been uh, been like supposedly to come out and keep getting perennially delayed and delayed and delayed. And they're just like, they turn into money sinks at some point. I don't think there should be anything wrong though with being ambitious. Like, do you think maybe just the problem was EA wasn't willing to spend that much money? I personally don't think so. I think Jedi Fallen Order, like blowing everyone's doors off and being like such a hit showed EA that it's oh like that not only a single player games still work and people want them but b that it's okay to go over budget a little bit and spend money to make something that's quality yeah i just i just hope that EA knows what they're doing in this case and it's not a case of like being overprotective or something i don't think it would be anything like that because i mean if they were i mean i think i mean i'm crossing my fingers and knocking on all the wood nearby me when i say this but i think ea just in the past couple years has turned over a bit of a new leaf like they don't seem to be the same you know pump out a new game every year just so we can make whatever it doesn't matter if it's good or not like they seem to be taking their time and not just with bioware but like letting other studios like dice and just uh and just giving people time to make quality I mean, like it's still EA, but for the past couple of years, they've earned a bit of trust back, at least from me. Yeah, I mean, it's sad news, but at least, like, personally, I do kind of feel like if it's supposed to be coming out exclusively for PS5 and PC, or at least a timed exclusive for PS5, it at least kind of gives me time to be financially stable to get either a better PC or a PS5. Well, hell, if it comes out in 2025, it might be on the PS6. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I'm I'm not disappointed at all. I loved the original, and if it's going to be remade, nine out times out of ten, the, the remakes are never as good as the originals. I know, and that's just the thing is, I hate when people try to change. Like you try too hard to fix something that's not broken. Like just use as a fairly recent example, the Final Fantasy VII remake was in my opinion, very subpar. Can you imagine what, like, um, what Taris could look like before its destruction if they if they do it right in a remake? You know, just how visually stunning it could look? I would imagine it would look very much like Havarl does in Mass Effect Andromeda. But isn't, isn't, um, isn't Taris more like a city, though, in the Knights of the Old Republic? Yeah, but it's, it's got some forested areas and swamps, too. It's definitely. It's not like Coruscant. I don't believe it was just a giant planet city. Oh yeah, because there was also the. Um, I don't know if they called it the Undercity or something, but there was like an area that had Ragnaros, wasn't it? Yeah, there's. By the time you get to Swotor, there's Ragnaros everywhere in the entire planet. It's basically the swamps of sadness from the never-ending story. <laughs> yeah, I do see where you guys are coming from. Like, I I, I very much enjoy playing Knights of the Republic one to to this day, but. I don't know. I, I I still think it would be a, a shame not to be able to, you know, s- see what those games could look like in a with a modern day en- uh, game engine. You know. Oh no, I 110 percent agree. Like you mentioned, Terrace. I mean, I would love to spend like all of the some time checking out Manan 
on like super ultra max settings. And I mean, it would probably be amazing. All, all the planets would be incredible. I just, like I said, at just at this point in time, I would rather than shelve it for three or four years and then release something that even if it's not as good as the original is close, than just release a hot mess pile of garbage right now just to try to cash in. What they need to be doing is coming up with Knights of the Old Republic 3, having something to slot in between 2 and, and the Old Republic. It's, it's kind of gone past that time where that's possible now, though, Tim, because I did rewatch the ending of Knights of the Republic 2 now because I, I remember my first playthrough, I just spanned through all the cutscenes and didn't appreciate the story of it. But um, the whole prophecy that's supposed to set up Knights of the Old Republic 3, that's at the end of Knights of the Old Republic 2, is actually the the prophecy of it is answered in in Swotor. Like the the story element of that is is continued in Swotor, so it wouldn't really fit, unfortunately. Bring back Project Ragtag. <laughs> What's Amy Hennig doing? <laughs> I, I think I heard that the project that was Kotor three physically became Swotor as well. So there was an original intention for it to be Kotor three, obviously. But I think they saw what WoW was doing and thought, hey, we could just turn it into this. But, you know, Swotor's all right. Swotor, I mean, for being 11 years old and being kind of dumbed down because it's an MMO, it still looks pretty good. I'm still with you, Tim. Like, it's, it is a shame that we didn't get to see what Kotor, could have, Kotor 3 could have been. Yeah. Well, I, say, I mean, not everybody gets the opportunity to play um, The Old Republic, do they? No, and I suppose one of the benefits that the KOTOR games had was they were available on console as well, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the problem with MMOs is you can't play them on console. Well, there are some exceptions. Like, you can you can play um, Elder Scrolls Online on console, can't you? Destiny. Uh, I mean, yeah, but those are more like... Destiny is more like I would consider... I mean, I guess it's technically an MMO. That's more like a four-person co-op game than anything. In a lot of ways, it feels like an MMO, though, with the whole like style of gearing and rating and things. Yeah, but I mean, like Destiny, if we're being honest, would be like playing SWOTOR, but only doing flashpoints and nothing else. Yeah, yeah I mean, the teams, I suppose, aren't as big as an MMO, as you say. Well, as I think you're saying, basically. Yeah, that was kind of my point. But anyway, anyone else have any thoughts on KOTOR and where we can move on to the main meat of the segment? Uh, no. No. We decided, after much deliberation, that after our big expose on Cerberus last time, that this time we switch over to the Alliance, and more specifically, David Anderson, and give our thoughts. We'll start off from going from Mass Effect 1 to Mass Effect 2, to Mass Effect 3, then into the expanded universe, the novels and comics and such. And, and get, when we're done, give a summary on why we love them or hate them or anything in between. So, uh, Tim, would you like to start us off? I believe it's your turn this time. Uh, yeah, sure. So um, we're starting off with Mass Effect 1? Yeah, we'll start with 1 Might as well. That's where it all began. I actually kind of... Felt a little sorry for him, to be fair. He must have had one. He was, um, he, the, normally was supposed to be his ship, wasn't it? He was, uh, only captain for a bit for, like, one mission. 
and uh, then he gets it taken off him. But yeah, he's, he's set up to be the father figure, isn't he? Yeah, very much seems like that. A mentor, if nothing else. Yeah. Yeah, one thing that I did find a bit weird uh, was that obviously you're, you've kind of been drafted, you, Shepard's been drafted onto the Normandy. Um, it was, wasn't Eden Prime supposed to be a shakedown run? Um, like a test kind of run of the Normandy and its systems and stuff. Yeah. Well, Anderson says to you when you know when you get take over the, the ship and that, he says that uh, she's fast and she's quiet, and you know the crew. And you're like, well, do I really? Because I have to go round and speak to everybody and and kind of get to know people. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought that was a bit weird with what he said, but. Well, I think it was in just to interject real quick. I think what he meant to say was more along the lines of, like, like you would be even if you, Shepard had never specifically met, say, Caden or Doctor Chakwas or Engineer Adams. There were all there were most of the crew were like high profile enough, and Shepard was as well that they would even if they'd never met, they would have like cursory knowledge of each other. Ah, uh, okay, yeah, okay, makes sense. Or that's how I interpreted what he said. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you don't really have much else to do with him. He kind of tells you about his past with Saren. Uh, and then right at the very end, you get the, the option to either have him shot or he can punch Udina, really, can't he? Uh, to, to get the locks released for you. But, I mean, he, yeah, he, he, he comes across as... I don't know, kind of just sidelined. He, he should have, you know, he was f- f- forced into early retirement because you've taken his, his ship off him. And, you know, he's, he's there now as Udina's advisor or right-hand man sort of thing. Yeah, it is easy to kind of wonder, isn't it, that, like, maybe there were original plans for him to, to have a more prominent role in, in some respect. Because he does just kind of... I don't know. He he gives he gives you this stuff, and he and he sends you off on your missions, and it kind of, to me it, at least, it makes you think that there's going to be some kind of follow up with him, like he's going to he's going to speak to you after all these missions, and I guess yeah, it makes more sense to speak to the council, but at the same time, there must have at some point been an idea at least to go back to the citadel and talk to him. Yeah, I mean you can do, and he does give. I think it's like a couple of lines after each main story mission, doesn't he? Uh, they're slightly different. Yeah, you can go chat with him and Udina after each main mission, and Udina will always disagree with what you did, no matter what you pick, and Anderson will always try to stand up for you, regardless of what you pick. It's kind of mildly amusing side banter that, unfortunately, I bet a lot of people never saw. I don't think I saw that. <laughs> but... um. Well, it's, it's nice that they did that at least then. But yeah, it's, it's little little touches like that that you know it's easy to miss, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It's like if on Novaria, if you save the Rachni Queen, Udina gets mad that you just let a fertile queen go, and she's gonna start the rebellions all over again. And if you kill the queen, then he gets mad that you committed genocide on an ancient race that we could have learned from. So I mean, it's it's, it's humorous. I mean, like it's fitting with his character. <laughs> What did you pick? Did you, did you pick for him to get shot by the guards or to uh, go and hack Una's, Udina's computer? I picked, well, okay, first of all, I guess I'll start at the beginning. My 
feelings with Anderson in the first game were a bit of a roller coaster. Like at the very beginning, like you say, I felt kind of bad for him because like they take his ship away and he's like this cool war hero. And then he also kind of gets screwed by the council. I know he blames Saren specifically, but knowing the council, like after playing all the games, I kind of feel like they were all too keen to not let a human become a specter anyway. So they were looking probably for any reason to throw him under the bus. But then he also kind of like really annoyed me and rubbed me the wrong, started to rub me the wrong way the longer I played. Like at the beginning, when you first confront Saren and he lies about what happened on Eden Prime and Anderson goes off and then Saren's like, well, you're just, you're just mad because of what happened in our past 20 years ago. And then the council just automatically sides with Saren and they're like, yeah, and then shuts him down. And then Udina admits, like, yeah, you're not part of this case anymore because you're just a liability at this point. And I was like, yeah, you know, you kind of had a point. I mean, like you can't, like with all, given the past they had and everything else, like Anderson probably should have recused himself before Udina basically forced him to. So I don't know. That's probably an unpopular opinion. And I'm sure one or both of you are going to tell me why I'm wrong there. I'm kind of just wondering what you meant when you said that he lied. Because what was it he lied about on Eden Prime? No, no, I meant when Saren lied about what happened on Eden Prime. Oh, right. And then, and then Anderson calls him out and he's like, no, that was you. That wasn't me. And now. Oh. Nihilus is dead, and you killed Nihilus, and obviously the council is going to side with Saren. And Anderson yelling at them, even though he's right, isn't going to change that. If anything, it just looks bad. So, I mean, if anything, sorry. He does I say he does make you look a bit stupid as well. When if you once you touch the beacon and you get the visions, and he's like, "Let's, you know, you need to tell the council about the vision." If you turn around and say. No, it's it. You know, it, it's just a. It, it they'll think I'm crazy or something. He does it anyway, and it is like, oh, so we're accepting dreams into uh, testimony now. It's like he told him not to, told him not to, and you still did it anyway, and you just made that it look much like harder, exactly. Idiot. And that's like <laughs> after that whole mess happens, like you have to get like incredibly lucky, and go off on your own to like find a half drunk Harkin. And then get a tip from a shadow broker's agent on the Presidium to hopefully be fast enough to rescue Tally. And I mean, like, there's so many, there's like a million things that could have gone wrong there. And that's like the only reason you're ever, ever even able to start Mass Effect 1 is a million stars have to line up. And then even with all of that, you do it despite anderson like i mean it's what like the old saying goes with a friend like that who needs an enemy <laughs> the thing is though you have to you can at least appreciate the fact that he's all he's always stood up for shepherd though like shepherd he's always fighting for fighting for fighting in shepherd's corner i'll touch on that a bit more when we get to mass effect 2 but i mean for the first game i guess he does he just does it in a very like by the like for I mean, considering in the first game he's forty six, he of all people should know that a like Tim said, you don't bring dreams into testimony. That just makes you sound like a crazy person. And B, he should have known not to even be there in the first place because Saren was just gonna say it's because Anderson has a personal vendetta against me. Yeah. But to answer Tim's original question, I do the first time I got to the end, I've picked for him to go to the uh, the the docking base to unlock it there, 
because I was like, well, if I'm thinking about it logically, I'm sure, I mean, anyone would have a much better, stand a much better chance of hacking into just a random terminal in a shipyard than they would hacking into the computer of the ambassador of the entire human race. <laughs> but after the first time and after finding out more about Anderson as the games went on and I started to read the novels and comics, I send him to the docking bay just so he does get shot because I mean, he kind of deserves it. Uh, you see, I had him sneak into Udina's office the first time. I just enjoy seeing him punch Udina, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing that that's another thing too, not to change the topic too too much. But I mean, like I certainly understand why people dislike Udina, but at the same time, he's literally just doing his job. Like anyone in like this is talking like specifically Mass Effect One, well before any of the nonsense with Cerberus in the third game happens. I mean, he's literally just doing what he thinks is best for humanity. No, he's not. No, no, no. He's not doing it for best for humanity. He's doing it best for himself. He wants a spot on that council. And by extension, humanity. By proxy, probably. But he wants a spot on that council. He wants the power. He's also the opposite of Anderson. Like, he's never on Shepard's side. No, he's on the council side, isn't he? He's on Shepard's side quite a bit, depending on the choices you make. You can get him to support you quite a bit. Like, at the end of the first game, if you kill the council... And then say, like that they were just ridiculous, and why, they wouldn't believe me no matter what happened. They they were always antagonistic towards me and humans and all that. And then Anderson will be the one who says, "Shepard, how can you say that?" And Udina's right. Will is the one who's like, "No, Shepard's right." Yeah. Well, it's, I think it's, it's just because I don't know. I sound like I'm just making excuses for Anderson at this point, but. Just, I don't know, I think, I, do you not kind of see, like, that maybe Anderson just doesn't, it just, it just seems morally wrong to have let the council die in the first place, you know, just so you could give humans an advantage? Well, that that's not even necessarily fair to say, because at that point in time, you have to make a snap decision. It's like, do you sacrifice, like, 80% of the fifth fleet to save one ship? I mean, like, that's a lot more deeper of an issue than, oh, I just let the council die. I guess, but it's it's the people that are leading the entire galaxy, though, you know? But I don't know, I guess. I guess even in the grand scheme of things, if they don't believe the Reapers are a threat, then you can make the greater good argument as well, can't you? Yeah, and even it, I think it's, I mean, on one hand, it's harsh, but on the other hand, it's very pragmatic. Like, I know the Destiny Ascension is the most... It's the flagship of the council, and it's a massive, and it's got like a crew of 10,000 and a ridiculous cannon and all that stuff, but it's still just one ship versus weighed against like basically the almost the entirety of the Alliance's fifth fleet. I do think it's a shame that they really cop out on the whole um, human leadership thing. That if, the, if the council do die, you get a human council, but that idea just gets completely swept under the rug in three. I mean, there's a couple continuity things there, but I mean, like, it's just at that point you're like nitpicking, which I mean, I guess, admittedly, I do do a lot. Is it really? Is it really nitpicking though? It's like a major choice at the end of one. That's I know, and then it's the same. That could be like saying, could you imagine, like, if the council just one time listened to you, they never would have been in that position in the first place. I'm pretty sure that I'm, I'm, I've either read it somewhere. It's either in the codex or. 
it's mentioned somewhere, but they do, if you do pick the human council, they do start off, it, you don't see it obviously, but they do start off with an all human council until they get rebuilt and then they, they go back to the one spokesperson from each species. Well, the council, the council has a salarian. I think what happened. I think I know the passage you're reading, and I think that 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 happened where it was entirely human was in 2184, which was the year between Mass Effect One and Mass Effect Two. Yeah, because by the time Two comes, there is a replacement salarian, Turian, and Asari counselor. Yeah, they just all refuse to meet with you because they still blame you for the first council's death, even though you saved the Citadel. Yeah, but you're the one that gave the order to uh, not save them. <laughs> Might have been on the wiki, actually, on the codex. Anyway, so I take it then, Craig, you did all the nice things when you had interactions with David in the first game? Yeah. I mean, I I generally, like, I don't really know. Like, I, I don't think, I don't think I had strong feelings towards um, Anderson in the first game in, in any way, really. Um, like in, in, I mean, yes, yes, I did nice things because I, I just, I like being a Paragon character, but like towards, towards Anderson, it was more just kind of like as a, as a Paragon character, I would be a Paragon towards him because I didn't, I didn't like him, like him. I didn't, I didn't love him as a character in the first game, but I did love the fact that he was willing to go against the council to help Shepard stop the to, to to stop Sovereign. Like he he helps you, you know, es- escape the Citadel when you get grounded. And um, I don't know. I think at least at least they did that for him in 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 that he was given that opportunity to to help Shepard when when they needed to to get off the Citadel. And I mean to clarify, I mean like he does do very good things it's just there's a lot of things he also does that like make me want to like facepalm i guess yeah yeah i understand that like the whole thing about using trying to use dreams as evidence in the in the first place does make him seem quite unprofessional and i agree with that especially when you've just come off the ship where he's he's analyzing the footage from uh from ash uh, from Eden Prime, he, he does sound like he knows exactly what he's talking about. Yeah, he sounds in control, doesn't he? And then yet he wants to say, "Well, oh, we had a dream." <laughs> and even still, like I'm not entirely sure what him and Shepard could have done, but I mean, there had to have been a way that they could have come up with a way to like portray the information from the vision. Because it obviously both of them know it wasn't a dream, that would have made it sound a lot more plausible or tangible than basically just saying that I had a dream. <laughs> like they recovered some kind of data, or there was a there was a data cache that they uncovered, or something. Because I mean, like, even Liara says when you meet her on Therum that Prothean technology was because Protheans communicated by like through touch, so he's like touching a beacon would burn like potentially burn an image or a vision into your head like so i mean like in liara can't i know she's the prothean quote-unquote expert 
but she can't be the only person in the entire galaxy who knows anything about them. So, I mean, like there could have been, there should have been, there could have been a way they could have corroborated that, that made it sound a lot more real than basically what they did, which was just, I had a dream again, I, I don't know, maybe being overly harsh or nitpicky. Yeah. I mean, you could also make the argument that, um, in the age of omni tools and ships and everything, they should have the ability to take a picture. <laughs> or, you know, have some kind of recording, I guess. Cause I mean, hell, they actually did have a recording now that I think about it, didn't they? They had they had the footage of Sovereign appearing on Eden Prime. Yeah, but I mean that even until Mass Effect, even up until Mass Effect two, which is like two and a half years after what happens in Mass Effect one. The council still just thought Sovereign was a big Geth ship. Oh no, they didn't think that. They, I think they knew what it was, but that's the public image. No, like the, if you save the council in the first game, when you talk to them in the second game, the Asari counselor, whether it's uh, Tevos or oh, what's the other one's name, I forget. I'm not anyway. Whether regardless, both of them, you'll say, just go look at Sovereign. It's obvious the technology was more advanced than the Geth. And they'll reply almost verbatim, the Geth are capable of remarkable feats of engineering. And Saren was a very charismatic person. That's why they followed him. And that's why Sovereign was definitely just a Geth ship and nothing more. Yeah, but in the Citadel DLC in Mass Effect 3, if you, when you go in the archives, there's a, a whole section of there and it talks about the, the Geth attack on the Citadel. And then it recognizes you as a Spectre, and then it changes to the the Reaper attack on the Citadel. So they knew about it because obviously they were just keep, keeping it classified. They might have updated the records too, because there's no reason for them to lie. Because if you have that meeting in the second game, it's it's a private meeting. It's you, Anderson, the three counselors, and whoever two of your crew you brought you bring with you. There's no reason for the council to lie to you if they knew Sovereign was a Reaper unless they didn't know it was a Reaper until the third game. Because it wasn't even, because the Asari, yeah, the Asari counselor says that. The Turian counselor just basically ah, does the famous, ah, yes, Reaper's quote. And the Salarian tells you it's all nonsense you made up in your mind because you're letting Saren manipulate you. Like, there's no way they'd go to that extent to lie to you if they actually knew he was Sovereign was a Reaper. How did everyone feel about Anderson and Mass Effect 2? Limited. <laughs> yeah, he, he didn't really have as anywhere near as much involvement. I mean, I suppose that from the get-go, you can't really have him very involved because he's, you know, he's he's in charge of the Alliance. Well, not in charge of the Alliance, but he's 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 an Alliance, you know, soldier or officer, and or a counselor. Yeah, or a counselor, or he's like a. I don't know if you choose um, Udina as a counselor. Is is Anderson like an assistant or something? Is he like an ambassador? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, their roles are ju literally just reversed. Right. So, so, so either way, I guess Anderson becomes a politician of some sort. See, like my issue with in with Anderson, in, especially in Mass Effect Two, was where I really started to dislike him because, in all honesty. He's very polite about how he does it, but in all honesty, he's kind of just like an ass and a giant dick to you in all the limited as it may be in every interaction you have with him. Like, so he'll tell you that 
like my favorite his he'll tell you like oh i i have your back my door is always open if you ever want to come talk to me my door is always open I'll, i'm here to listen and then every time you try to have a discussion with him he immediately shuts you down and won't say anything because he's just says, oh you're with cerberus like the whole thing where he won't tell you after you find or after you finish horizon if you go back and talk to him about ashley or caden being there He'll say, yeah, I approve that mission because what if Cerberus was behind it? And I heard you were alive, but now you're working with Cerberus. And that's why even if I even if I knew that it was the re, it was the collectors and it wasn't Cerberus, I still wouldn't have told you Ashley or Caden were there because you're with Cerberus. And I'm not going to tell you anything at all because but I'm still your friend and you're you can come talk to me, but I'm not going to tell you anything. <laughs> it's just it comes across very like dickish again, like like I said. Yeah, it's a shame, really, because I think they really were shooting to do something quite nice as like a father figure, I guess. But I suppose it is kind of a similar case to Jacob, really, where he just wasn't really done the justice that he deserved. I mean, I suppose, but I'm just saying. Like at least like the thing with Jacob is Jacob has like an actual arc and you can see growth from him from the beginning of the game to the second, regardless of how you handled the situation with his dad. It's just with Anderson, he keeps saying all the right things, but then when you actually go talk to him, he shuts you down. I mean, I suppose he does technically offer to make you a specter again, but I mean, but he, even he basically says it's just a formality. It doesn't really mean anything. He's like, they never officially took it away from you in the first place. <laughs> no, but that's what I mean, though. I feel like, like Jacob, there are intentions there to do things with the character. Like, there were intentions to do things with Anderson. Like, as you keep mentioning, the whole you can speak to me, Shepard thing that Anderson says. I feel like there must have been an intention there somewhere, but it was just forgotten about and left, you know, on the shelf because... No, I agree with you. And there are other characters like that 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 happened to as well. I mean, probably most notably to myself anyway is Shiala. Like I felt like there was a whole bunch of stuff that was you were supposed to be able to do with her that just got left on the cutting room floor. But I mean, I just it just the what what we got, he just is genuinely unlikable in the second game as far as my personal opinion goes. Tim, you're going to tell me how I'm wrong? Uh no. No, I think you, you, you're spot on there, really. Um, you got no chance, you got no option to go back to the Alliance. And you kind of, although it's very limited in Mass Effect 1 with your interactions with him, you still get that he's kind of got your back sort of vibe from him. I mean, you know, the way you've, you've ended it with either him going to get shot or punch Udina's lights out, only for them to then turn around and say, yeah, you're a terrorist. Exactly. And I feel like they could have done something. Like, I mean, how much, how much, if anything, does it change if, like, would the first time, assuming you go see him before the mission on Horizon, would it really kill him if he's like, oh, by the way, Ashley or Caden is on Horizon if you get there, if, like, if you want to go see them? I'm like, no, that doesn't really change anything. But he's so got to stick up his butt about Cerberus. That I mean, like, even look like just to use someone who's in the game even less. When you do the arrival DLC, 
Hackett physically comes onto a Cerberus ship with no guards, no protection or anything, just so he can talk to you face to face. And like, if Cerberus isn't an issue for the Alliance's supreme commander, then what's Anderson's issue? Because I mean, like, even Hackett says, when you're like, oh, I never expected to see you on a Cerberus ship, Hackett is like, well, I don't like everything Cerberus is doing, but they're playing nice now and they're actually doing some good, so I can be friendly. Whereas Anderson's just like, no, you're with Cerberus, I'm not talking to you. Yeah, it is boring, isn't it, when Anderson's supposed to be like the father figure and Hackett's the one that seems more on Shepard's side. Yeah, I mean, like, if anything, I would have expected those roles to be reversed. Like, Hackett to be the one, no, you're a terrorist. Because, I mean, if anything, Hackett, the only time you ever even interact with Hackett in the first game is over the radio. Whereas Anderson, limited as it may be, you physically can go talk to him after literally every mission and ask him for advice and about his history and stuff. But somehow Hackett in the second game trusts you more than Anderson does. Yeah. I suppose it, it could be that he's not authorized to speak to you. Hackett's not going to have that, that problem, is he? Well, he, then why did he send you the email in the first place where he's like, come to the Citadel, I have to talk to you. But I'm not going to say anything, but I have to talk to you. Yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> you race across there and it's like, what do you want to say? Uh, nothing, I can't speak to you. <laughs> and beyond that, I'm sure, even like, first of all, if you make Anderson the counselor, then he's, I would imagine, under no restrictions about who he can or can't talk to. And B, even if he's not the counselor, and even if Udina told him not to talk to you because you're with Cerberus, I'm sure Hackett could have at least been like, don't worry about Udina. If Shepard comes by, make sure you talk to him or her. It seems very much like a, I can't remember if it, if it was in um, one of Tim's videos, but I think we must have talked about it at some point about um, the fact that it seemed like Jacob would have been like the Garrus equivalent until you get Garrus. And yet somehow, somewhere along the line, they decided to have you recruit Garrus so early on that Jacob just becomes kind of there and you've already got your sort of best friend companion anyway to replace Jacob. <laughs> so, Well, I mean, you technically can leave Garrus as the, to the last person you recruit before the mission on Horizon. So, I mean, you can do everything else prior to that, but I take your point, yeah. I mean, that, it's funny, I don't know about you, but I never, maybe I was just being overly simplistic, but I always viewed Jacob and Miranda as analogs for Caden and Ashley. Mm. Because what always kind of did it for me is if you specifically bring Jacob and Miranda as your squad to Horizon, they have um, unique dialogue with Caden or Ashley, like whoever's there. And like they'll kind of like confront each other a little bit, like how you would, like if the way like Miranda would be like the role of Ashley would be more standoffish and Jacob was the role of Caden where he's a little more reserved and not like as like blunt, but trying to say, well, we have to work together if we're going to stop the Reapers. Whereas Ash, whereas Miranda's like, you're so wor goddamn worried about Cerberus that you're not even paying attention to what the real threat is. Like, I feel like if it was reversed, that's how Ashley would react, like how Miranda does. 
and Caden would have reacted like how Jacob does. Yeah, but um, I, I was I was just remembering it was a it was a video specifically criticizing Jacob where I heard it, where Jacob is introduced in the beginning as someone who's supportive of Shepard, like he's, you know, he's like he's set up as the character who's supposed to be skeptical about Cerberus, and like if you read the comic where he's first recruited by Miranda, he doesn't like the idea and he has to be kind of swayed because he, you know, he's he's kind of understandably like hesitant about it because of their history um and it's like he's he's supposed to be like the perfect bridge i think to getting shepherd to trust them more but like i don't know if it feels like that was just kind of lost somewhere along the way and i think a lot some of that still does come across i mean like your first interaction with jacob on minutemen station when you talk to him about how'd you join cerberus and he's like well at first i don't trust them at all and he's like i doubt you could find someone a group with a more checkered past but he's like i just got sick of the alliance there's so much bureaucratic bs and red tape he's like even when i was a corsair and supposed to be like free from all that there was still nothing but restrictions he's like at least when i'm with cerberus when something happens they send people out to get it fixed and get it done not wait around forever for politicians to write reports first and yet at the same time he doesn't resign at the same time as Miranda um at the collector base. <laughs> no, I mean that's all those are all fair points. It's just I mean, I guess he could be Garrus and they probably did leave some stuff on the floor with him. Like I said, they probably did that with a bunch of characters. Um but I suppose anyway, does anyone else have anything to say about Mr. Anderson in Mass Effect 2? Not really. Not much to, to say, is there? Very fair. Okay, so I got, we'll move on to Mass Effect 3 then. My thoughts about Anderson in 3 were... I kind of got the impression that he was... He was certainly done a lot more justice, I think, in 3. I think he he certainly came across as a more more sympathetic character like a more um, a more caring character like i just thought it meant so much that he stayed behind on earth to try and help people i i thought it was it was such an important decision to make to to to, to you know um let shepherd do their thing where cuz i i think anderson sort of knew that shepherd was the right person to bring the galaxy together and anderson's kind of proved at this point that he's not good politicians we kind of see in mass effect one um but what he can do as a soldier is help as many people as he can on earth yeah and i think that's quite yeah and i just i just and that being i think i guess my first exposure to him as i've appeared mentioned um my first instinct was this is a good man who wants to help people and he he's he has um a good moral standing and i don't know I, I guess while he is being a terrible politician in the first game as i mentioned and i don't know i guess i, I can't justify him hold, withholding information in two um in three it feels like he's still he, he's showing his true colors i guess as a, as a good person and i'm i'm sure manning will have a rebuttal um <laughs> i will but i'll let you finish but i i, I don't know i just i kind of I, I I liked that he he still played a part in you know communicating with you about how Earth was doing and how he was you know there to kind of aid the resistance in that respect. And 
I don't know, I, I guess in a way it also kind of can be a detriment because it's sidelining him again. But I don't know, I, I just, I really like how he was handled in three, regardless of the the lack of screen time. And also the stuff with, I don't think her name's Kelly, but um, the girl he had a relationship with. Who you, Kaylee. Kaylee, that's it. You have a bit of the history there that you learn about that she, he did have past relationships. And that really, that does add something to his character when you find out he's had a past relationship. So I think they certainly did more justice to him in the third game, at least in my opinion. Yeah, it was a bit sad that they don't kind of get to say goodbye. Yeah. Okay, so my biggest issue with Anderson, and this is where it's going to be a little bit divisive, because like I'm not so blind that I can't see why so many people love him in the third game. But I find I personally find him like objectively terrible, both as a, a leader and as a person. So I mean, just starting from the beginning, when all the hell breaks loose in Vancouver during the intro, I mean he's supposed to finally like it's his it's his vindication. He's getting the Normandy back, and it's going to be his personal command ship, and he's going to gloriously lead the alliance against the Reapers and go out and forge alliances and win battles and do all of this. And then literally at the first drop of a hat, he's like, nah, Shepard, you do it. I'll just stay here and fart around on Earth for six months. Go have fun. You go do all that. I, I, I'm just, I'm going to objectively throw away all my duty and everything I was like my second chance that most people don't get. I'm just going to throw all that away so I can hang out on earth and fight around, fart around. I don't even care if I go back to Grissom Academy to see my girlfriend. I don't, none of that matters. I'm just going to stay and hang out on earth. Cool. I mean, it just, I was like, what? <laughs> like, what is this? It's just kind of a different way of saying what I said. Like, I think <laughs> it was, it's just, He's just to be. He's choosing to defend Earth, and in that moment, he's he knows he's not a very good politician. He's not going to be able to bring the galaxy together. Well, I mean, but I mean, depending how you play Shepard, Shepard's definitely not a very good politician either. Yeah, I just think from a like he's so. All the other times you see him, regardless of whether you agree with him or not, he's so he's he's always like prideful, and he always wants to do the right thing and take charge in the situation. And like I said, it might have taken them three years in game time to get to 2186 when Mass Effect 3 happens, but he finally, he got his second chance. And like I said, most people don't get a second chance. He was literally gifted the Normandy. And at the first sign of anything going sideways, he's like, like, I mean, don't forget at that point, Shepard's not even part of the Alliance anymore. It's like he, Anderson makes them, He's like, consider yourself reinstated, and and then it just leaves. He's like, have fun. I mean, it's just like, what? Like, what is this? Yeah, but doesn't it mean something that he's he's again defending your corner like that? He trusts you, and he gives you the he he, he kind of he's the one who reinstates you when you know um it was it was the alliance that kind of did you dirty. No, I know, but I mean, I'm just saying that would be like, do you, would either of you, if giving the opportunity to like save, just maybe use something on a smaller scale, like if you had the opportunity to save like 
your house or your neighborhood or your town or whatever, but it involved you going overseas somewhere, wouldn't you still do it to save your town as opposed to just hanging around and fighting a losing war, knowing you're not really making a difference? Like he was making a difference because he and they they needed a leader on Earth, and he he must have made an impact, like having a leader like like he is to 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 you know keep keep them together. I mean, and again, it's I think at this point it's arguing semantics because, like I said, I certainly understand why people love him especially in the third game. It's just, to me, it's like he's objectively, he's like abdicating his post. He's just like saying, I'm done, bye, and just leaves. And then, like later on at the end of the game, I always skip the final renegade trigger interrupt in the game and let the elusive man kill him so I don't have to sit through his god-awful, cringy, I'm proud of you speech. It's just, I mean, like by that time, I'm just was like, yeah, I'm so done with you as a character. I don't care. Just please die. <laughs> and I know that's, I'm in a vast, a very small minority there, but it's just, I was so fed up with them by the end that I was like, yeah, I, the first time I played, I was like, I'm not even sure what not skipping this trigger is going to do, but I'm hoping it means Anderson's going to d- get shot and then I can finally move on. And thankfully I was right. I kind of felt sorry for him in three. I mean, you stole his ship off him, the Normandy off him in the first game. Then he steals it off you and locks it, locks you up for six months, and has it almost refitted and was going to be his his ship again. I don't think he stole it off Shepard. I think the Alliance confiscated it. Well, yeah, that Shepard blames him, doesn't he? I'm sure Anderson could have put in a good word but chose not to based on how they interact the first time they meet in the third game. He shipped, didn't he? <laughs> no, he literally says in the third game that the consequences could have been worse, but it was, it's like Shepard says, you and your good word. And so kind of implying that the consequences for destroying that relay could have been worse, but Anderson not put in a good word. Yeah, that's true. I believe his exact words are something like that, which objectively could mean literally anything. But I mean, like Tim just said, like after all that happens, you essentially steal, even though it's not your choice, you essentially steal his ship in the first game. And then in the third game, he literally gets like the chance to make amends and get a do-over. And then he says, no, thanks. I'll pass. What would you rather? He he fly the Normandy and not you that? No, I would think that you'd go together. Like Shepard even says, we're in this together. And she- and then Anderson's like, nah, look over there. There's there's injured people. I have to stay. Yeah, it, it would have been a bit weird if he came on the ship as well. No, because like, why couldn't he, A, be a squad mate, or B, he could have been like running the, like, the quote-unquote captain while you could have been the executive officer who actually goes out and does the missions. Because, I mean, like, by Mass Effect 3, Anderson's 49. I mean, but, I mean, as we find out in the game we did get, he's certainly more than capable of leading field missions and isn't afraid of combat. So 
again, he could have been a squad member or B, even if he couldn't, he could have been on the ship while Shepard was off doing things. Yeah, but who knows how many people he saved by staying behind to help people on Earth. How many other people did he kill by not doing what his job was? Well, but everything he could have done on the Normandy, Shepard did anyway. Like, Shepard didn't necessarily fail at anything that Normandy was sent out to do. No, but and Anderson could have been a calming, like, voice of reason, you know, like someone, sometimes you need someone who's a little bit older. I mean, like, don't forget, by the time Mass Effect 3, Shepard's only 32. I mean, that's pretty young. And, I mean, if there was someone like Anderson's age, who's almost 50, that could have been a calming voice of reason when situations eventually did get tense, which they obviously did every five minutes in that game. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I just feel like, so like hypothetically, like if the Reapers had attacked five minutes earlier and Shepard never got out of the jail cell, what would have happened? Anderson would have been forced to go. So, but I mean, he's, so he's still, I mean, like it literally took him until the second before they left to be like, I'm not going. So, I mean, like that was very spur of the moment. And to me, Red came across like, I really don't want to do this. I'd rather take my chances quote unquote leading the resistance here. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have put it that way. I think he, he had every intention to go and or at least get you to the ship. Maybe that was that's what his plan was. Just it to me anyway, it feels it really feels a lot like Anderson used Shepard as a scapegoat to not have to do anything himself. I suppose him just taking on the mentor role to sort of pass it on to you as as the player. You know, giving you the responsibility because he trusts you. I know, but like again, like it would have been a th- if Shepard had been out for like, like say, like say Shepard came back and then they had a show trial and like, yeah, you're guilty and you killed three hundred thousand Batarians and this and that. We're going to arrest you and give you a very severe sentence. But I mean, at the same time, but then immediately afterwards, just let Shepard out, and then. They got, and then they had, say, a couple months before the Reapers showed up to plan what they're going to do, and then this and that and the other thing. And then after all that, when the Reapers showed up, Anderson was like, "No, you need to do this because it's you. You can do this. I have to stay here and lead the resistance." I'm just saying the way it plays out, where it's literally like five minutes after Shepard gets out of jail, then when and like Anderson's just like he's like thank god i don't have to go here i'm gonna just pass this off and i'm gonna go do this instead it's just like maybe i'm reading too much into it but it just seemed very cowardly of anderson in my opinion okay well i I can see that i mean and again i can certainly understand your yours and tim's points i'm just saying me personally i just think he like wanted to pass the buck and didn't want to do it yeah i mean maybe he was just kind of afraid or kind of shied away from responsibility there but i mean it, characters are allowed to have character flaws i mean that's true but that's a pretty big character flaw and a pretty major character the game tries really hard over like several hundred hours to try to make me care about fair enough well i guess we can just politely agree to disagree so I guess nextly we can get into the expanded universe. I'll do you want to Tim? I'll let you take the comics and then I'll come in and touch up on the novels because 
I think you've, I feel like you've read the comics more recently than I have. Well, I mean, not for a while. The very first comic he appears in is, uh, it's a web comic, actually. Um, I don't know if you can still get it, actually. It was like a special release. And it was He Who Last Laugh, He Who Last, He Who Laughs Last, which is a very short story about how Joker became the pilot of the Normandy. That is actually available on print. I've got it with the complete collection. All right, okay. That's good. Yeah, because it um, initially only came out on a on a website. Uh, so, yeah, he's in that, and he's quite ruthless, actually, in that, if I remember correctly. He's uh, wanting Joker to be court-martialed and locked up, and or was that the other guy that he was with? I think it was the other guy. It might have been the other guy. And yeah, he, he, by the end of the comic, he gives Joker, he'd he obviously seen what Joker can do, and he's like, yeah, I actually want uh, I want this guy to be the pilot. I don't think he, does he appear in the other comics? Um, he's at least in a few of them. Because the, most of the comics are set between the games, and obviously you can choose whether he's going to be the counsellor or not. I don't think he has a major role in any of them, with maybe the exception of that Joker one. Yeah, so obviously that one's set before Mass Effect 1. Anderson did appear in another comic with James Vega, which was to do with James Vega's training. Oh, okay. Yeah, I knew I saw him somewhere. At least I'm like, I hope I'm not crazy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's to do with Anderson informing Vega that he's being brought in for more training. Anderson tells him he's he's got to get past an incident and be the soldier expected of him. I wonder, was that the comic? Because now that you mentioned that, I feel like maybe I read somewhere that Anderson was actually the person who forwarded James's N7 commendation. Because like when you talk to him about it in the game, James says he has no idea who did it. He just said it was dated the same day the Reapers attacked Earth. I mean, I think it fits. I think it makes sense. Yeah, and now it, it kind of it comes back to me a little bit. Because uh, Vega's getting drunk in a bar on Amiga, Omega, and it's Anderson that brings him back into the Alliance. Yeah, he tasks him with guarding Shepard. Yes, that's right. So that's why Vega's guarding you in the opening of um, Mass Effect 3. Anderson also appears in the movie, in Paragon Lost. That he does. Okay, I'll take the novels right uh, quickly here and again for this we're going to put out major spoiler warnings if you haven't read mass effect retribution or mass effect deception you might want to skip ahead and skip this part to the end because there will be major story spoilers ahead uh, so in a nutshell um retribution came out in 20 yeah came out i believe in 2012 and I didn't read it until about a year or so later. Or no, maybe it did come out in 2010. I didn't read it until after I finished Mass Effect 3 anyway, though. And by that point, as I mentioned earlier, I already kind of strongly disliked a lot of things about Anderson. And the stuff he does in Retribution just like boiled my blood. Like He almost single-handedly doomed everyone on Grissom Academy twice 
because he was so prideful, he couldn't allow himself to accept help. Um, so real quick rundown of what happens without going and like talking everyone's ear off for like five hours. Essentially, Cerberus does an experiment on, first of all, they capture Paul Grayson, then do an experiment on him. And then it, basically they turn him into a hybrid Reaper. They forcibly inject him with Reaper nanobots just to study what happens when people get infected with nanobots to, so he hopefully find a way to counter the Reapers. Keeping in mind, this is still around the end of Mass Effect 2 in the timeline, so they still have a little bit of time to hopefully find a way to counter Reapers before like the actual major fleet shows up. So, and obviously at some point, Paul Grayson becomes so dangerous, even in his like weakened state, like he's become so advanced, like even though he's stripped completely naked and locked in a cell with nothing except food and water, that the elusive man goes, he's like, okay, we've gotten all the data I think we can get from this. We need to kill him. Because if he gets any more advanced, if we don't stop him now, we might not be able to stop him. So he gets Kai Lang to go kill him. But what ends up happening is right before Lang is about to kill Grayson, a Turian task force, like a giant fleet, shows up at the secret Cerberus base that Kaylee Sanders and David Anderson found by uh, what ended up happening was right before Grayson got caught, he had sent an email just barely managed to send an email to Kaylee. And then she panicked because she still had a lot of feelings for Grayson. And long story short, she pulled some strings with Anderson. They found a bunch of Cerberus sleeper agents on the Citadel, managed to, through one way or another, get a bunch of information and found the location of the Cerberus base and then passed it along to the Turians. So the Turians attack the base. Everything goes sideways and goes to hell. And what ends up happening, and what I mentioned before in the last episode, Lang has to make a choice to either kill Grayson or save the elusive man's life. And he ends up saving the elusive man's life, which initially pisses the elusive man off something fierce, saying it's more important. Like, you could have just doomed humanity by not killing Grayson, letting him get off this space station. So that was like the major plot point where the elusive man was like, you should have let me die. This is way more important to humanity as a whole. And then fast forward a little bit, Grayson is obviously escape, immediately escapes Turian custody because they don't know what he is. Then he goes around on a little rampage, ends up on Omega, and through some other shenanigans, uh, Kaylee Sanders and David Anderson and Kai Lang all also end up on Omega. Lang makes a barter with Arya to get her help to try to kill Grayson. Le uh, while Anderson and San Kaylee Sanders are in Arya's custody, then what ends up happening is right when Lang and Arya's troops are about to kill Grayson, like they drew him, they use Kaylee as bait to draw him out. Anderson kills a Batarian, who is one of Arya's elite guards, causing the whole ambush to get Grayson to go sideways again. And then, again, more shenanigans ensue. Grayson ends up escaping again, and then actually gets off of, steals a shuttle and gets off of Omega to go back, to go to Grissom Academy. 
now while all this is going on, Anderson and Sanders are standing around like, wow, we have to stop him. What should we do? This is bad. And then Lang walks up to them, openly admits that he's working with Cerberus and says, I have a ship. I have lots of weapons. I have Metagel. I have food. I have everything we need. Let's, we don't trust each other, but we have to stop Grayson. That's more important than anything. Let's work together to go stop him. And then Anderson and Sanders say, sure, okay. But then what ends up happening, as they're going back to Lang's ship, Anderson betrays Lang, and a scuffle breaks out. Lang ends up getting retained, detained by Turian guards. And then Anderson tells the guards that he's Cerberus, hoping that the guards will kill Lang. But then Kaylee ends up saying, no, well, we might need him, we might need him. So they end up all three of them leaving on Lang's ship, but they tie Lang up to a chair and basically don't let him do anything. Then they get to Grissom Academy and then rather again, even though Lang offers to help them, Anderson leaves them tied to a chair and says, no, you're going to stay here. Like it's so dumb. And then him and Sanders go off. Lang eventually does break free of his bonds and then goes into the station and then getting the help of a biotic teen, part one of the Ascension Project students. And then while they're on one side of the academy and Sanders and Anderson are on the other, and then I get fast forwarding a little bit through some more shenanigans, a big battle ends up breaking out. Lang tries to stop Grayson, Grayson overpowers him. And then at the very last second, Anderson comes in with Lang's shotgun and actually finally does manage to kill Grayson. And then Everybody gets up and Lang's like, okay, that's over. I'm going to leave. And then Grace or Anderson says, no, you're under arrest. And Lang's like, F off. You just None of this would have happened if it wasn't for me. You can keep all your students and your girlfriend and everything, but I'm leaving. And then rather than just say, okay, fair enough, you are with Cerberus, so I should arrest you, but you did help out a lot and I did kind of screw you over like, 18,000 times, rather than just letting him go, Anderson shoots him in both kneecaps to try to stop him from leaving, causing Lang to have to literally get up and climb a wall and then mon- literally monkey bars his way from the rafter, down the rafters of the ceiling to get back to his ship to just barely escape like five seconds before guards show up. So it's just, and in a nutshell, that's leaving out a lot of, obviously a lot of detail that's the basic synopsis and it just comes across anderson just comes across as so vindictive and prideful and such an idiot like he literally by by not accepting help he almost gets himself and several other people killed like several times over he can't agree he can't even let anything like it just everything he touches almost goes horribly wrong and he almost ends up winning just at the end by like dumb luck and I mean, that's a very brief synopsis, but would either of you care to comment or if you did know anything about the book, touch on it briefly? Uh, no, I've not read that one. It's, it's definitely an eye opener, but do you, not that I'm making excuses for or anything, but do you think like Anderson had good reason not to, not to trust um, Kai Lang though? Cause I know he has like a history of, um, I don't know, like in- incompetence or being like dishonorably discharged or something, wasn't he? With the 
with the alliance. Okay, so so real quick, what happened there was while on shore leave, Lang was attacked by a drunk Krogan. What and Lang, who was unarmed and only had his service knife, somehow managed to still defend himself and kill the Krogan. And then he got arrested for that. And then even though it was self-defense and obviously a drunk, I can there's probably not a huge amount of things in the galaxy scarier than a drunk Krogan who's like eight feet tall and 900 pounds. Rather than risk a diplomatic incident with Tichanka, the Alliance dishonorably discharged him and gave him a 20-year prison sentence in a maximum security Alliance prison, military prison. And he only got out because the elusive man was aware of him and was like, I'm not letting a person with that kind of skill go to waste. And the elusive man organized a very elaborate and well-orchestrated escape plan to break him out of prison. So that's where Lang's initial, granted before, he did do a lot of less than, like very unbecoming things, like looting dead corpses and things like that. But he also had such a a long laundry list of awards and accommodations. And he was such a good soldier that all the bad things he did were just swept under the under the rug because the alliance liked him so much because he was so good at what he did. In fact, I believe someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm like 95% sure that Lang was actually the fastest N7 ever. And another Lang actually enlisted with the alliance. He lied about his age and faked his credentials so he could join at 16, which actually thinking about it means him and Shepard would have joined the same year. So I mean, that's just another miss, little missed opportunity they could have talked about if they had like ended up being at like the academy together or whatever. But yeah, it's just so. I mean, like I can certainly understand where Lang's coming from, where why he hates the alliance and the council, because like they legitimately like. I mean, yeah, he killed the Krogan, but I mean, what are you going? What are you supposed to do when a drunk Krogan's attacking you and all you have is a knife? That's that's understandable. It's just a shame that we didn't get that kind of expansion on him in the games. Oh, I know. And like, I just checked, double checked, by the way, uh, Retribution did come out in 2010. So there was no excuse for the, even if, if there was only one thing from that novel that they touched on in the game, I wish it would have been what Lang did to Arya's daughter. Like having Arya and Lang both in the same game and have that not come up. I just think was like a very big missed opportunity. Okay. All that said, the only other thing like major event that happens with Anderson in the novels is his run in with Kai Lang at his apartment on the Citadel, which is the apartment he gives you in the Citadel DLC in the third game where I honestly, it's been so long. I don't even remember why Lang was there, but they got into a fist fight and Lang like kicks the, crap out of him and has him on death's doorstep but rather than killing him lets him leave and then Lang hangs back and eats all his breakfast cereal and then pees on all his flower pots as revenge for getting shot in the lakes which I mean to be fair I mean if someone shot me in both knees and I had the opportunity to kill them but instead just peed in their flower pots I mean that's I think they're getting off pretty easy <laughs> yeah I didn't really know where it went wrong with Anderson I feel like I don't know, I don't really know what their goal was, but they could have done more for him in 
in the games, but I mean, it's like they were trying to make him look like a worse guy in the books and comics. <laughs> like, yeah, the books, like Retribution especially, he just comes across as a giant and admittedly, like, he obviously doesn't know what's going on with Paul Grayson and that he's like a super reaper and that he like is single-handedly running around massacring like like art like armies and like full patrols of biotic troops sent specifically to stop him but i mean after after all of like the initial like when stuff goes to hell on the cerberus space station i mean it's everything beyond that it's just like i can't even if i wanted to defend him like the stuff he does he couldn't i mean like refusing to work with lang then betray almost getting lang killed before they even got off of omega and then tying him to a chair rather than letting him help you and then if nothing else at the very least at the very end you could have just let him walk out the door after all he did surely that's enough goodwill to just say yeah you know what just go but he's like no i'm gonna shoot you in both legs and try to get you arrested before you can just leave like he wasn't even doing anything he just wanted to get off the state get off of grissom academy yeah, there's not really any excusing that, except maybe he didn't know what Kai Lang had done to get himself um, discharged from the Alliance or arrested. Yeah, but like even still, like I said, if any drunk person attacks you and you feel threatened for your life, I mean, you're allowed to defend yourself. Never mind if the other person's like three feet taller than you and weighs almost a thousand pounds. I mean, the only other thing is admittedly, with all the shenanigans going on in Grissom Academy, the biotic team that Lang recruits to help him, Lang does lie to him and almost get him killed. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, that's still, I don't think, in my personal opinion, worth trying, like shooting him in both legs, trying to prevent him from literally just leaving. Like he wasn't going to do anything else nefarious. He just wanted to get in his shuttle and leave. I just, I, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, especially all the nonsense on Omega. It just like made me want to pull my hair out. I'm like, it's like I mentioned before, it's like, how is this a person that I'm supposed, that they want me to cheer for? It's like, he's such an Yeah, I don't really, I can't really justify his decision making in those stories, to be honest. It's, I mean, you'll eventually have to read the books yourself. And then before we can pro have a proper conversation about it, but as I mean, like what I gave was the very cliff notes version. Cause I mean, it's a fairly big novel and I'm obviously, I can't go through everything, but I mean, it just, he didn't come out of it looking very either book looking very good in my estimation. But I think anyway, with that, I believe we've covered everything there is to cover about one David Anderson, unless either of you have any last thoughts you'd like to add? Well, then what's your, so what should be your overall impression of the guy? Um, in the first game, I thought he was a bit of an idiot, but I understood where he was coming from. In the second game, I genuinely felt like he betrayed me in the third game. I hated him because I was like, now you've, you got a second chance and you literally threw it away because you'd just rather not be arsed with doing anything. And in the comics, I legitimately wanted him dead. or And the novels, I mean, sorry, not the comics. Uh, what about you, Craig? I think I, maybe with the exception of his attitude in two, 
I I never hated him. I I I kind of understood where he's coming from in in wanting to serve the greater good and helping people on Earth. And I don't know. In in one, I liked how he was always fighting in your corner. Um, as far as his decision making in the comics and books goes, I can't really justify it and. It's just a big shame that they decided to go in that direction, if I'm being honest. One last quick thing I wanted to mention real quick, just because Craig mentioned the quote-unquote greater good. Another thing to consider in the third game was that literally up until Shepard gets onto Normandy and leaves with it, everyone else in the galaxy thinks Shepard is a war criminal who's in a military prison. So I still, that's another thing that it just makes me wonder, like Anderson's one of the most respected people in the entire Alliance, maybe the most with the exception of Hackett. And he decided to, rather than him be the voice of the Alliance, he'd rather have someone who justifiable or not was a legitimate war criminal who, as far as everyone else knew, killed almost 350,000 Batarians for no reason it's just like that i think that cause it would cause a lot of friction with the other races before you even get to the part where you're trying to talk about forming alliances i am sovereign and this station is mine the podcast is recorded live in the ploppy 54 gaming discord server come join us there to listen to the raw unedited version all the details you need can be found at ploppy54gaming.com. And please, don't forget to leave us a 5-star rating if you like the episode. We'd really appreciate it. Until next time, this was the Lazarus Podcast, and I'm Craig. I should go. Should we, should we wrap that up there, then? Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I've said my piece. I'm sure I'm going to get absolutely flamed in the comments, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Pretty frustrating, actually, because I... I... I said that I had like a question in mind to ask you, but I can't remember what it was. Was it about Anderson? Yeah, it was about Anderson. I just can't remember what it was. Why he like he ties a win for the worst character in Bioware history? <laughs> Definitely not that one. Hey Tim. Yeah. Do you want to hear a joke about time traveling? Uh, uh never mind, you didn't like it anyway. <laughs> oh dear. That one you need to save for the Saturday live stream.